Good morning. Uh, I'm not going to say Happy Father's Day because it's already been said four or five times from the pulpit. I've, I've wished you guys some Happy Father's Day already privately, so I'm kidding. Happy Father's Day. How are you? Good. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Happy Father's Day. Okay. We are going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. Romans chapter 2. And uh, as we were looking at verses 1 through 5 last week, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this week. So if you're not there in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, we'd ask you to grab one of those blue Bibles, and if you turn to page 940, that'll bring you to the text. Before I jump into the sermon, I just thought I would point out that we have a couple here that this Thursday, they will have been married 54 years. Huh? Edgar and Mildred Gator right there. Yes. 54 years. That's awesome. That's really awesome. So for you young marrieds, you should talk to them. They have a lot of good... No? No, Mildred? You should talk to them. Talk to them separately and then have them come back together. It's a lot of fun to see if their answers line up. But just a fantastic couple. Been a real blessing to me and to this body. So uh, praising God with you for what he's done in your lives. Well, listen, it is Father's Day. Let me ask you something. How many of you... I was an only child. Um, How many of you had, had siblings growing up? Okay, a good portion of you. So let me ask you something. This could be true of mothers as well, but since it is Father's Day, let me focus on fathers. Did your dad have a, had a fa- did your dad have a favorite a favorite child? Did they? Ha- I mean, was it you? I don't know. I, you don't have to answer that. Uh, mothers do this too, but do you know what I'm talking about? They had a favorite, so basically that child could do pretty much whatever they wanted, and they seemed to not get in trouble for it. But the other children or child, if they did something even half as bad, dad or mom were all over them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? And, you know, people will say something like, man, that, they can't do anything wrong in the eyes of their father or their mother. It's that favoritism. Well, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you why that happens. There's lots of reasons that we favor one child over another. Sometimes it's just because they're better. <laughs> but that's not always necessarily true. I mean, sometimes they just give us less headaches, right? So we enjoy them more. But if you ask us, do you love him or her more? No, I love you all equally, of course. But, you know, it's just, it's, we can relate to that. There's often some partiality towards one child, right? Can you guys relate to that? No, you can't relate to that at all? No, Lewis cannot, but some of you, some of you can. So. But you can relate with them relating to that, right? Not at all. All right, excellent. This is going to be a hard message for you, brother. So last week, we were looking at verses 1 through 5, and you've got to understand that the Jewish people, in the historical context, the Jewish people believed to some degree that God was partial towards them, that he favored them, that they were the favored nation over all the other nations. And it showed up in their attitude and in how they reacted with other people, other nations, and even how they interacted with God. So when we look at verses 1 through 5, Paul begins to point these things out to the Jewish people. He says, listen, you're judging the Gentiles, okay? You are 
pronouncing judgment on them. You're condemning them for their sinful behavior, for their immoral lifestyles. And it is condemnable. It is, it is something that is wrong. But did you consider this, that while you were doing that, judging them, and guess what? You're guilty of the same things. Did you realize that while you were judging them, that you too then are condemning yourselves before God? Did you see the connection? You clearly understand what's right and what's wrong. And you judge the Gentiles, the unfavored nations, for their sinful, immoral behavior. But do you not see that you are worthy of the same judgment as well since you practice the very same thing? And he asked them some questions. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Is that what it is? Or do you just take for granted all the kindness and and long-suffering and patience God has extended to you? Now, you've got to understand something. Israel has a long, long history, the Jewish people, with God. God did go to this people. He did choose them from among all the nations. He did bless them in incredible ways. And you know what? The Jewish people over and over again rebelled against God, didn't listen to God. And God would chastise them. God would send His wrath, but then He would pull back and He would extend His mercy to them again in His kindness. And I think what happened is as that process kind of carried out, as they continued to receive God's kindness, they just started thinking, you know what? We're the Father's favored nation. We can pretty much do whatever we want and get away with it. Mm. And so Paul is working now in Romans to, to, to show the Jewish people, you're wrong. You're wrong. You guys are guilty. And the fact that you won't repent of your sins means that you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God will reveal His righteous judgment. Then beginning, and that was just the first five verses. Now, beginning in verse 6, Paul begins to elaborate or explain further this righteous judgment of God that is going to be revealed or made known to the world one day. And he again is making the point in another way that the Jews should not think that they will be treated any differently than the Gentiles when it comes to God's righteous and just judgment because God will use the same criteria for judging every single person. He'll use the same criteria. So just like in those family situations you're talking about, if you weren't the favored child, then you know what I'm talking about when the favored child had one standard and you had another standard, right? And it wasn't fair. If you were the favored child, you were digging it. Because you got one standard over here and the rest got beat up for things you never got beat up for. Beloved, God is not that way. This is what Paul wants to make clear. He is not that way. He does not have favorites. He is impartial. So let's look at the text together as Paul labors to communicate that truth to the Jewish people who, in a sense, thought they were the favored children of God and would be held to a different standard than everyone else. Beginning in verse 6, Paul says these words, He will, 
Again, this is, he just got through talking about the righteous, just judgment of God. So now he's elaborating, he's explaining. He, that is God, verse 6, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So this morning, if you have your outlines or your bulletins, inside of your bulletins is an outline, you'll find these words there. We are going to consider simply two aspects of God's coming judgment. And we're going to do that so that we might not have any false assumptions, any untrue assumptions or beliefs concerning the criteria that God will use to determine mankind's fate, his final resting place. His destiny, eternally speaking, spiritually speaking. That first aspect of God's coming judgment is God will judge impartially. We've already been talking about it this morning. We're going to look at that a little bit closer. Second aspect of God's coming judgment, just righteous judgment, is God will judge everyone on the same basis by their works. Now, before we go any further... I don't want you to get the wrong idea about what I just read from Romans or even what I stated in my outline. Because here's my concern. It's that some of you might think right now or be thinking that I am or maybe Paul is, as he wrote Romans, suggesting that a person can be saved by their good works. Maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're not thinking that, but if you are, I want to address that. Because maybe what I just read, or even that second point of my outline, maybe you're hearing that and you go, wait a minute, are you, what are you saying? Are you saying somehow we're, we're saved by our good works? Listen, if, you know, if you've been here for a while and you know me, you know I don't teach that. You know I don't believe that. And I don't. And neither does Paul. Okay? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And not, let me repeat this, and not by our works. By our works. Let me, let me just, maybe all of you are like, yes, that's what we've heard, that's what we believe. Let me reinforce it one more time, because I, I don't think you, you can o- ever over-reinforce this. Because there's a lot of people out there in religions who do teach that you are saved by your works, by the things that you do. Okay, so let's look at a few other passages just quickly this morning, just to establish where we are with the Scriptures. Here's the Apostle Paul. He wrote Romans. He just said, God will render to each according to his works. All right? Let's look at some other things that Paul wrote concerning salvation. Titus, or Ephesians, I'm sorry, chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, or you can if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, a familiar passage. It could not be more clear. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Here's what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Your salvation is not your own doing. You didn't have anything to do with your salvation. It is a gift 
of God. All you did was receive the gift through faith, not a result of works. I don't know. You can't find a more clear passage, I don't think. It's not. Salvation is not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. You know what boast means. Brag, right? So if salvation was through works, if that's how you and I get saved, then in heaven you'd have something to boast about, something to brag about. Look what I did. Look how good I was. I'm amazing. That's why I'm here. But no one in heaven will be doing that, beloved. The only thing they'll be saying is, I don't deserve to be here, but he is amazing. He is awesome. He is righteous. And he has extended to me his righteousness and forgiven me of all my sins. And that is the only reason I am here with my Lord. See? So that's clear. How about another one? Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I'm using the New International Version translation. I think it's a little more clear here. Beginning in verse 3. Again, this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote, F, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Titus, he wrote many of the books of the New Testament. He wrote Romans that we're in now. Here's what he writes. At one time, we, so Paul includes himself, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Okay, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about before we gave our life to Christ. This was true of us. We were messed up. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, look at the verse, not because of righteous things we had done, not for that reason, but because of His mercy. His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the born-again experience whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified or made right with God, that's what justified is, made right with God by His grace, not by our works, but by His grace, Getting something we don't deserve. That's what grace is. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Beloved, do you see anything in that section that we just looked at? Did you hear anything about the fact that somehow works contributes to our salvation? No. It's not there. It's not there. And here's what Paul says later in the book of Romans. We'll get there eventually. Romans chapter 10 Verses 9, again, another familiar passage. Just kind of retracking ground that we, we've gone over before, but I just want to be clear as we move forward in this text. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you agree that Jesus is Lord, if you profess that and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Does it say, and if you work? If you do good works, you will be... There's nothing in there about that. Then he goes on to explain what he means in verse 10. For with the heart one believes. They believe the truth about Jesus Christ. They believe they're sinners in need of a Savior and that that Savior is the Son of God, the Divine One who came and died for their sins on the cross that they might be forgiven and credited with His perfect righteousness. They believe that and they are justified. They are declared right with God because of their faith. And with the mouth they confess that one is saved. Verse 11, for the scripture says, 
everyone, beloved, everyone, not every, everyone. Who is that? Everyone. Everyone who does this, who believes in him, they will not be put to shame. Why? There's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. That's what he means by everyone. Jew and Gentile. Greek, another way of referring to the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile, all people. If they will believe, they will not be put to shame because God is not partial. He doesn't make a distinction here. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Then he says in verse 13, For everyone, quoting from the Old Testament, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see that? And finally, if that wasn't enough, here are the words of Jesus Christ himself from one of the Gospels. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, who? Everyone, not some people, everyone who does what? Who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. End of story. That is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and the Apostle Paul is simply saying the same thing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone and what He has done. And it is not in any way because of what we have done, including our works. Now, that we are saved that way is clearly the teaching, the clear teaching of Scripture, okay? But since that is the case, how then should we understand passages in the Bible that appear, that appear on the surface to teach that where we spend eternity, either heaven or hell, does actually have something to do with our works? That's the question. Okay, so we have a very clear teaching in Scripture that every person or any person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it is only by grace alone, not in of your own doing, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then there are some other passages that when you first read them, you might get the impression that they're teaching that works does have something to do with your salvation. How am I supposed to understand that? You understand my question? Well, I want to, I'm going to answer that question for you this morning as we look at this text and as we work through these two uh, points together. And hopefully, I hope that it will be clear. And if not, please come and ask me after the sermon if you have any questions or if I've confused you in any way. I don't want to do that. But I do want to help you be able to read the Scriptures and understand them in their entirety and not have somebody come up and challenge you because you say, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They go, wait a minute, what about this verse? And then you don't know what to do with it. And, you, and they tell you, no, you're saved by your works. And you don't know how to respond. I want you to be able to know. I want you to be able to respond. I don't want you to be taken uh, down a path of, of lies by those who don't understand the word of God. So let's just look at the first point. God will judge impartially. God will judge impartially. We'll start there. We've already talked about this, about favoritism. To be impartial means to have no bias. That's what it means. It means to have no bias, to not favor one person or side more than another. Okay? So if you're impartial, you don't favor one person or side more than another. To be partial, then, is the opposite of that. It is to favor one person or one side more than another. It is to have a bias. 
After describing God's just or righteous judgment in verses 6 through 10, which we're going to get back to in a second, at the end of that section, he makes this statement in verse 11. Very clear. For God shows no partiality. Okay, so he, he lays out this righteous judgment of God, and then his, his conclusion is, God, the reason this is all true is because God shows no partiality. He does not favor one person or one side more than another. The NIV just translates it this way, for God does not show favoritism. We do. Okay? I just asked you guys who grew up in homes where you have siblings, you've experienced it. It is, in, it is part of what we do. We show partiality. We have biases. God is not that way. God is not that way. What Paul is saying here is simply that God will judge impartially. Impartially. He will not show favoritism to the Jew or to the Gentile. He will not favor one person or one people group over another. He will not do that. For all of humanity, Paul is saying, all of humanity is going to be treated equally or in the same way when God judges them. All of them. Now, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? If you're not sure? Okay, I think it's I think a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think some of us have experienced, either growing up in homes where that happened, or even in our lives where we have been not judged equally. Okay? Because of who we are. We have not been judged equally. One person received a favorable judgment. We received an unfavorable judgment just because of the color of our skin, maybe. Do you know what I'm talking about? So do you think judging equally without partiality is a good thing? It is a good thing. It is a good thing. Humanity, they're messed up. They are very partial in many ways. But God is not that way. And we see that as we move through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10:17. We see the truth, this truth repeated about God. And, and how this is just again to kind of his uniqueness from sinful creation, from sinful humanity. He's, he's exalted above us in, in, all, in many ways, including morally and including in this way. Deuteronomy 10:17 For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God. Yeah. And he says, who is not partial. He's not partial and he takes no bribes. See, I mean, do you understand in that culture and even in our culture today, I can if I don't have your favoritism, I can often buy it. I can pay for it. So we see this happening in the judicial system around the world and sometimes even in our own system, that you can buy the favoritism of the judge. No, not with God. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care who you know, who your family is. He doesn't care where you came from. He will judge you the same way he judges every other person. Second Chronicles 19.7 Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. Here's why. For there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. 
Maybe we experience injustice in our world, and we do with our judges and with our law system and so on and so forth. But that won't be the case with God. He is just, always just. He does not take bribes. He shows no partiality. Job 34:19, just reflecting on who God is. Uh, one of Job's friends says there, God, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor. You understand what he's saying? He doesn't, he doesn't esteem somebody higher because they have money, and the one who doesn't have money, then they get a raw deal. Listen, in our justice system, I, it, it's still, I think, the best justice system on the planet, but it has flaws. One of those being if, if you have a, a good lawyer, if you have a lot of money and you, you have a good lawyer, you're going to get a better defense, you're going to get better treatment than the guy who has no money and gets a, assigned a public defender. But when it comes to God, whether you have money or not, it won't matter. Because God will see through all that. And He will judge perfectly without partiality. Acts 10.34, the Apostle Peter opened his mouth and he... I'm just showing you a couple. There's many more we could look at. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. No partiality. So this is a a repeated theme in the Scriptures, and it's important, which you'll see in a second why. In verse 6, as we look back at the text now, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul's emphasizing God's impartial judgment by pointing out, look back at the text, that all people, you see it there in 2.6, he will render to each one, or, or all, all people is what he's saying, or each person, as one translation has it. He will render to each one, each person, all People, meaning both Jew and Gentile, will be judged based on exactly the same criteria. And consequently, Paul says in verse 9, look down there at verse 9 of chapter 2. He uses these words, uh, every human being, every human being or every soul of man, is another translation, who does evil will experience the same horrible outcome. And everyone... Uh, who does good, every human being who does good, will experience the same wonderful outcome. There are no exceptions here in the text. Everyone, regardless of who they are, if they do this, they will get this. Everyone, regardless of who they are, every soul of man, if they do this, then they will get this. That's, he's, he's trying to demonstrate God is not partial. God does not have favorites. Jew, that's, what he, that's who he's primarily speaking here to is the Jewish religious person who thinks that somehow he's going to get a better deal with God in the end. That somehow the Gentiles will be judged, but they'll escape the judgment of their sin. But no one gets special or different treatment, according to the Apostle Paul. In other words, Jews stand on the same basic ground as Gentiles when it comes to God's judgment. And both will be held and judged by God according to the same standard, which according to Paul is their works. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, why is this the point Paul wants to make? I've already told you. The the reason Paul is laboring away at this is because many of the Jews, having been the chosen nation of God, the nation of Israel, having been blessed by Him and and received His, His kindness and goodness in many ways, and God continuing to extend His hand to them, even when they were rebellious, they thought... They had something going over the Gentiles. 
The reality is God chose the nation of Israel for a purpose to fulfill His divine plan, which He is still working out in history. But because He chose them doesn't make them special or favored in some way in the sense that God will then look at them and go, I'm not going to hold you to the same standard that I hold the rest of the world. You get a pass. You can do what you want and rebel against me, and I'll look the other way. But for those awful Gentiles who are doing the same thing you're doing, I'm going to send them to hell. But that's, in a sense, what the Jews thought. So Paul's got to make it clear, guys, no, no, no. You're guilty before God, and your guilt makes you worthy of God's judgment, and it's coming because you won't repent. You won't turn to Christ. You refuse. You killed the Messiah, and you still will not repent. As one writer puts it, God's impartiality demands, it demands because he, of who he is, because he is impartial, it demands that he treat all people the same. And in this case, judging every person according to what he has done. Now that brings me to the second point in the outline. And this point has some implications for us. God will judge everyone on the same basis by their works. Now don't forget as we keep moving through the text, are you saved by your works? No, you're not. Then why is God judging us on them? And why is he determining our destiny based on them according to Romans? Why? I don't understand. And that's what I want to help you through right now. Look back at the text. Let's just read it 6 through 10 this time. Let's read it one more time. Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. In verse 6, Paul says, Every person will be judged by God based on their works. And then he explains further what he means by that in verses 7 through 10. Now here's what you need to understand so you don't walk out of here confused or thinking something that's not biblical. About, you know, what Paul is saying about how a person is actually saved. Paul, in this section of Romans, is not talking about how someone is saved. It's not there. He never says that. He, he's not speaking about that. That's not the context here. He's not talking about how someone actually becomes saved. Paul will not deal with that until later in chapter 3. He will not start laying out the wonders of our salvation and the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is received by faith alone. He won't start doing that in detail until we get farther on in the book of Romans. There's a context here. That's why it's important always to know the context. Otherwise, you start ripping stuff out of its context, you make it mean something it was never intended to mean by the author, by God. Instead, this is what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the criteria or the basis or the standard 
that God uses for each and every person to vindicate or justify his just judgment of them. Let me say it again. Paul is talking about here not how someone is saved, but about the criteria or the basis or the standard that God will use and does use for each and every person to vindicate or justify his righteous judgment of them, his determination of their destiny, their final end. See, listen, it is a person's works or deeds or what they have done that will give irrefutable evidence in the day of God's judgment to what you truly believed. You understand that? It is your works that will give irrefutable evidence a standard by which God can judge. It's your works that will demonstrate what you actually believed inside your heart. A person can say all day long, I love God. I love God. I'm a follower of God. They can say that. But if they will not obey Him in their life, but rather persist in obeying unrighteousness, then they prove the falseness of their profession. Do you understand what I'm saying? How do they prove it? By their works. They prove that what they're saying is not true. If it was true, if they loved God, if they were followers of God, if Jesus Christ was actually Lord to them and Savior, then those people will have a life pattern of persistence in living to please the Lord. And it will prove, those works will prove the reality of their profession of what they truly believe, that they do actually love the Lord. Let me, let me read you a couple of other statements by uh, Bible commentators that I trust, that I rely on, and how and some things that they have said regarding this passage so that you don't walk away thinking something that's not accurate. This is, this is one writer, he says this. A person's habitual conduct, how they live their lives on a regular basis, whether good or evil, it reveals the condition of his or her heart. It reveals. Do you understand? So if, I have, if I'm one way, then my, you'll know that, not so much by what I say, but by how I live. It reveals. You, you can hide and fool us. But your life will never be able to hide from God. He will have the whole thing, all of it. The stuff that is done in public, the stuff that is done in private. And it is that life that reveals who you really are in your heart. Eternal life, the writer says, is not rewarded for good living That's not what Paul is saying. That would contradict many other scriptures which clearly state that salvation is not by works but is all of God's grace to those who believe. We just worked through that before we got started on this section. A person's doing good shows, proves, manifests that his heart is regenerate. What is that? What is that word, regenerate? It means that he has a new heart. 
He's a new creation. He's been born again. He's not the same man or woman. He's a new man or woman because of Jesus Christ. Because of his or her faith in them. And Jesus Christ has made them a new person. And their doing good reveals that. Something's going on inside of them. They have truly believed. Such a person redeemed by God has eternal life. Conversely, a person who continually does evil and rejects the truth shows by his life that he or she is unregenerate. They have not been born again. They do not have Christ. Not really. They are not new creations. And therefore will be an object of God's wrath. Let me read you another one. In the immediate context, Paul was not teaching how we are made right with God, how we were justified, how we are saved, but how God judges the reality of our faith. Faith is not an abstract quality that can be validated by some spiritual test unrelated to life. That's a lot of jumbling of words and stuff. Let me just tell you what he's saying. People will say, I have faith. And that faith never has an impact on their life. There's no connection. That is not faith. That is fantasy. Biblical saving faith impacts a person's life. That's what the writer is saying. So he says here, God judges faith by the difference it makes in how a person actually lives. Beloved, If someone says they have faith in Jesus Christ and that makes no difference in their life, then they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what Paul is saying. It's impossible. Faith is not removed from your life. Not biblical faith. A.M. Hunter says is right in saying that a man's destiny on Judgment Day will depend not on whether he has known God's will, but on whether he has done it. You can come into church all day long, every Sunday, knowing about Jesus Christ, knowing about God, knowing what He requires of you, what He's asked you to do as, as His child, because you say you're His child. But you go throughout your whole life and you care not about the things of God, not really, except for maybe an hour on Sunday morning, but then going forward throughout the week. It's not part of who you are. Then you are fooling yourself. You are not God's. That's, that's what's going on here, guys. One more. Now, the primary thrust here is that God does not judge us on the basis of our profession, what we say alone. He does not judge us on the basis of our relationships. He does not judge the Jew on the basis of his Abrahamic heritage. In other words, hey, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was called out by God. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Did you check my bloodline? It goes back to Abraham. Therefore, I'm good with God. It, no. No, that's what he's trying to tell the Jewish people. No, that does not make you good with God. He does not judge you on the basis of your identification with the church. So now the writer's stepping into our day and age, right? Well, I'm good with God because I go to such and such church. That doesn't make you good with God. He judges on the basis of the product of your life. That's how he judges. The question will not be whether a man is a Jew or whether he's a Gentile, whether he is a heathen, he doesn't believe at all, or whether he is religious, whether he goes to church or doesn't go to church. The issue 
is does his life or her life manifest, demonstrate obedience to God? That's the issue. That's the issue. That's it. I read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 to you earlier to show you that we are not saved by our works, right? But there's another verse right after verse 9. It's verse 10. And this is what it says. I'll read the whole thing again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's verse 10. For we are His workmanship, we being Christians, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God Himself prepared beforehand that we should what? Ignore them. Not do them. Walk in them. We are clearly, the Scriptures are clear that we are not saved by our works, but the Scriptures are just as clear that God has saved Christians, those who have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He has saved them. He has made them new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 In order that they might do... Good works. In order that they might, just so you understand, when I say good works, this is how I'm defining it, in order that they might live for God. Okay, so we're not talking about uh, taking cookies to grandma. I mean, unless you're doing that for God, but, I mean, because anybody can do that. We're not talking that's just general, broad, good works, and everything falls under that category. We're talking about a person who is living for God, living to obey God, and Obedience to God is impacting every area of their life, whether it be as a spouse, as a husband, as a wife, as a dad, as a mother, as an employer, as an employee, as a neighbor, as a human being, as a citizen. Every area of their life, their finances, their thinking, their heart, their feelings, their time, every area of their life is having an impact and they're bringing it under the obedience of God. Good works. You understand? Before we started Romans, we went through 1 John. Do you remember that book? Some of you? Thank you, Senior, for remembering. Let me quickly remind you of a few uh, passages, just quickly. 1 John chapter 2, just so you understand, kind of you get the flow here. Here's the Apostle John now. Disciple of Jesus Christ, walk with him. Here he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Here's how we know. If we keep his commandments, if we obey the Lord. This is how we know if we really know him. Just in case you're not sure that's what John is saying, he goes on. Whoever says, I know him, I know God, I have a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, They're a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. You say you live in him. You say you're part of him. He's part of you. Then you should be living like him. That's the natural consequence of being in Christ. Now, when we looked at that passage, remember, we're not talking, John's not talking about perfection, a perfect life. Because if that's what John is talking about, we're all done. We're all done. There's not a single one in here 
who perfectly lives for the Lord. He's talking about the direction of your life. Beloved, what's the direction of your life? I mean, that's a question you need to answer yourself. What is the direction of your life? Unto the Lord or unto something else? Are you continuing to bring more areas under Him and and under His obedience, being obedient to Him? Or are you looking to remove Him from every area of your life except when you need Him because you're in trouble or maybe for an hour on Sunday? That's the question. So we'll skip a couple of those other passages for sake of time. The Bible repeatedly, beloved, makes it clear that those who truly have a saving relationship with God will live for God. Did I say perfectly? No, and the Bible doesn't either. But the direction, the habit pattern of their life, those who have a relationship with God will live for God, and those who don't have a relationship with God, you know what? They won't. They won't. And please don't be confused by thinking that church attendance is enough to, be, to say that you're living for God. That's not. When I say living for God, it's the same thing the Bible says. It's a lifestyle. It's a pattern. It's at my workplace I live for God. In my marriage I live for God. In my community I'm living for God. Perfectly? No. I fail. But when the Christian fails, they repent turn and get back on track. You know how many times they do that? Too many to number. But that's the pattern of their life. The non-Christian, the one who may profess he believes in God, he doesn't obey God and he just keeps on going. No big deal. So, based on the inventory of a person's life then, God can justly and accurately and without partiality determine their fate. As Paul says here in Romans, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, quickly, we'll go back to the text and make a few more comments here. Let's go back. There are two different groups and two different outcomes. And then I'll apply this a little bit. Two different groups, two different outcomes when God renders to each one according to his works. So Paul lays it out. God is impartial. He will render to each one, every person, according to his works. Here's the two groups. Here's the two outcomes, beginning in verse 7. Romans 2, 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The NIV translates it this way. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Well, what is Paul saying here exactly? Simply this. He is describing the life that will ultimately result in eternal and unhindered fellowship with God in heaven. That's what he's describing. Well, what what kind of life is that? Well, it is the life of a true follower of God who longs to please God and so persists in doing good while seeking the glory of heaven, the honor and praise of their Lord, and the blessed promise of immortality. This is a person, beloved, who does not live primarily for themselves or for this world, but they live for the Lord and for the world to come. Now look back at the text. How about the second group? 
Romans 2.8. But for those who are self-seeking, one translation says selfishly ambitious. You understand self-seeking? They're looking out for them. For those kind of people who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, here's the outcome. There will be wrath and fury. So what is Paul saying? Simply this. He is describing the life that will ultimately result in being engulfed by the terrifying wrath and anger of God in a place the Bible identifies as hell. What kind of life is that? It is a life that doesn't long to please God. It doesn't long to please God, but it longs simply to please self. That's its focus. A life that refuses to obey the truth of God, but does obey or give itself to unrighteousness. Sin. This is a person who lives for themselves and for this world and not for the Lord or the world to come. You understand the two groups, two consequences that Paul's describing there? Paul then basically rephrases what he just said about the two different groups and outcomes, but now he includes the statement, the Jew first and also the Greek. And if you've been here in previous weeks, I told you when he uses the word Greek, it's a way of referring to the Gentile, the non-Jewish people in that historical context. So let's look at it again. Romans 2, 9 through 10. Then Paul says, after he just said that, he kind of rephrases and he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, as Paul just defined it, the Jew first and also the Greek. Remember, he's, he's primarily here focused in on the Jews. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And I believe Paul is just emphasizing the fact that both Jew and Greek or Gentile, in other words, all people, all of humanity, are subject to God's judgment and will be treated equally or without partiality when God renders to each one according to their works. Because God shows no partiality. Now, Based on that, here is something for you to think about this morning. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, when that happens, when the world is made known of his perfect decision regarding man's destiny, each one's, when that happens, there will be no hope of eternal life for the professing Christian or the church attendee who never lived for the Lord. There will be no hope. Whose life could rightly be characterized more by selfish ambition, disobedience to the truth, and unrighteousness than it could be characterized by love for and devotion to the Lord and faithful obedience to His Word. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not that your, your life of devotion to the Lord earns you a place in heaven. It's that your life of devotion to the Lord justifies God's judgment when He grants you eternal life because He knows that you have been regenerated. He knows that you have been saved. He knows that you are a new creation in Christ because that's the only explanation for that kind of life. 
and therefore he will judge according to your works. But what will not happen is for a person to live however they want while they profess one thing but live completely the opposite of what they profess and somehow God will give them favor in the end and he'll say, it doesn't matter. You're good with me. I mean, you hung around the church people all the time. That makes you favorable in some way. Or you were born in a Christian family. Just come on in. I'll show you some partiality. I'm not going to judge you like the other wretched sinners over there. God's not going to do that. And this is not a saying that to you is not a message then for you to go, hmm, as I examine my life, I don't think it's a life of devotion to the Lord. So, in fact, I don't see any of that in my life. I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I'm here because my wife makes me come or my husband makes me come or it makes me feel better for a few hours. But other than that, Monday through Saturday, come on. I mean, you know, I'm just, the Lord has really, as I sit back and look, He really has nothing to do with my life. I don't care if I lie or tell the truth. I don't care if I commit sexual immorality or if I stay pure. I really don't care. I don't care what my eyes see. I don't care what my mouth really says. It doesn't bother me too much, right? If that's you, the message is not, I need to try harder. Maybe I need to get on the good works train. That way God will let me in. That's not the message. The message is, you're not saved. And when God judges you, His judgment will make that very clear because he will lay out your life before you in a way that I can't do and, and almost nobody can do. He knows everything. Your thoughts, your deeds, your words spoken in secret or lowly so no one else could hear them. He knows it all. He'll lay it out and he'll go, you see this? I will judge you according to this. And what this says is, you don't have Christ. You never did. For that person, if that's what you're going through, if that's what you're thinking right now, there's a a remedy to this. Get saved. Call upon the name of the Lord for real this time. Recognize your desperate need for salvation and cry out to God and He will save you if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Period. You can't do anything. And when He saves you, beloved, He begins to change you. All at once? In the first week? No. But over time, progressively, He begins to change you. And beloved, that is what the Christian then, the true Christian, begins to see in their life. They begin to see these good works or deeds as a result of a new, deep desire in their heart to live for the Lord and not for this world, but for the world to come. Okay? It's, people sometimes say to me, I don't, I don't feel, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not very assured of my salvation. Are you pursuing the Lord? Because as you pursue the Lord and you come under His Word, He'll tell you things like, I want you to be kind to one another. Kind? They don't deserve kindness. I, did, I didn't say that. I want you to be kind to one another. You didn't deserve my kindness either, and I was kind to you. I want you to be kind to one another. Guess what? I want you to forgive one another. Oh, no, God, wait a minute. You don't know what they did. No, listen, I'm the Lord. You call me Lord. Forgive one another. And you go, I, I want to. Help me forgive. And then you forgive. Forgive. 
And when that takes place, you go, whoa, you see that evidence of God working in your life. That good work, it starts to provide you assurance of whose you really are, of what has taken place in your life. The Bible says, live a pure life. Don't sin. Beloved, all the things that the Bible commands you to do, you cannot do in your own strength. You can't do in your own flesh. You can't do it. So when you're able to actually start doing it because you're a Christian, you know, whoa, it's a confirmation. God is at work in me. This is a real thing. I actually am a new creation. I actually have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. And as you do that, it builds more assurance that on that day, when He lays out your life, you know what He's going to see? A habit pattern of spirit wrought, produced, empowered good works and obedience and devotion to the Lord. And then he will be able to rightly say, come into my blessed kingdom. Come into your eternal home that I have prepared for you. Each man will be judged. Everyone, according to his works. That's what it means, beloved. So I hope for you who examine your own life and you realize, I don't Jeremy, I'm, I fit in with these guys who don't live for the Lord. I live for myself. I'm self-seeking. I'm selfishly ambitious. I hope you realize it doesn't then matter if you come to church. It doesn't. You can come to church for the rest of your life. Your works will reveal your heart. You need Jesus Christ. You need Him. You need Him right now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't, you don't know if you have life after today. You don't even know if you have life in the next hour. You need him right now. For those of us who, who know Jesus Christ and we see God working in our life because we see the manifestation of good deeds, good works, I'm not talking about some, like I said, general category, but I'm talking about obedience to the Lord, obedience to his word. We see that. We see a new desire to live for the world to come. That should fire you up. It should fire you up. Doesn't that fire you up, brother, when you see that in your life? I know I've talked to my brother, and he sees those, those changes that have taken place. And you see like a, an excitement like a kid, first time at Disneyland. Why? Because that, is, that is telling you, you actually are gods. You actually are saved. And it gives you assurance that when you stand before him in Judgment Day, you don't got nothing to worry about. You don't got nothing to worry about. Because your life will have manifested the evidence of Jesus Christ being your Lord and Savior. You see? And hopefully that will help us as those things come into our lives and we see God at work, working through us, and we're obeying. It helps us because it just reminds us again and again, I know whose I am. I know where I'm going. And when the difficulties of this life come against us, we need that kind of reminder on a constant basis. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I know this is a passage, Father, that many people have kind of struggled with, not exactly known how to, what to do with it. And so, Father, I hope, uh, I pray, I work hard at trying to not be confusing and to communicate your word accurately. Father, I hope I've done that today. And Lord, I pray that you would work it all out in people's heads so that no matter what, they get, they get it right. Father, for those that are here who who may talk to you, but 
they still don't have a saving relationship with you because they have yet to really place their faith in Jesus Christ. They just haven't done it. They just won't. Lord, I, Father, please, I, I pray uh, that you work to save them. Even right now, Father, that they would realize on that day all will be made clear and bare. There's no hiding. There are no secrets. And a person's life will be laid out. And it will be the standard or the criteria that you use to determine a man's destiny. If it is, if it is filled with the life of, of disobedience, of rebellion, of self-seeking and selfish ambition, then clearly it is a life that never trusted in Jesus Christ. And Father, you, you will pour out on them your wrath. And it's, it's terrifying. It should be terrifying to all. But Father, for those who have given their life to Christ, many who have been Christians for a long time, some very new, they can already see, they can look back and they can see what you are doing and what you have been doing. And, and they can look at those things and, and get excited because... They'll be able to stand before you, God, not because they're good, but because you have worked through them and produced good works, works that you have prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, making us new creatures in Christ, Ephesians 2.10. And we see those and we go, that is God at work in me. I am his and he is mine. And God, you will look at that criteria and you will judge impartially. And you will give to those who have a life demonstrating the reality of their faith, you will give to those eternal life, peace and blessings and honor. Father, thank you. And I pray that we continue to to meditate on those things and to focus on those things, Father. Keeping our mind on the the world to come and on you and, and not on this place at all. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.